This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us. Have you ever asked yourself, how did this country become so woke and why? Well, we can lay blame at the feet of the purveyors of social justice, which my next guest calls a deadly cocktail of grievance that fights by publicly shaming its critics, angrily mobbing its opponents and seizing control of America's cultural arteries. Worst of all, after spreading for decades, social justice has a sizable lead in the culture wars. Is there any way that Americans can win the battle? against social justice and the elevation of society's worst people? It's a great question. We're going to get some answers today from Eddie Scary, a nationally recognized journalist focusing on politics and culture for the Washington Examiner. And he is author of the book we'll be talking about, which is called Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Great title and great to have you with us, Eddie. How are you? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. Oh, it's a joy to have you. Tell us a little bit about the lead that social justice warriors have right now in the culture wars. What do people need to know? Well, we certainly see in the Democratic Party, I mean, and that's that's a, a focus of one of the chapters of my book, uh, Privileged Victims, but in the Democratic Party, I've, th- this is the first, the country's first social justice primary. Um, we're seeing uh, this ideology at work right now, and I think this is uh, a my theory is that the, a big reason why Bernie Sanders has been so successful is because every single day he comes out on the campaign trail, calls uh, calls President Trump a racist, calls him a bigot, calls him a homophobe. And not only that, he he took the biggest leap that any of them took at all, any of the candidates, when in New Hampshire, um, at the debate in New Hampshire, he stood on the stage and said, America is a racist society from the top to bottom. Um, and that's that's how this whole ideology operates. It, it, it It's about grievance. It's about victimization. It's about oppression all on the basis of gender, race, and sexuality. So we're seeing in the Democratic Party, at least, it's a very popular, <laughs> it's a very popular concept. You can get ahead, if you, you can get ahead very quickly um, if you buy into the social justice scheme. Um, but assuming he's the nominee, I'm, I, I think that this election will be a barometer as to how far down this country is, um, down this rabbit hole. But again, I think that the, the jury is out on this. We don't have an answer completely yet. Yeah, I agree with you there. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember when people who were running for president actually talked about ideas other than just insulting the president of the United States nonstop. I mean, it's so emotional. It's so irrational in so many ways. It's so Marxist in many ways to separate people into classes of oppressed and oppressors. But why is it working, do you think, Eddie? Why are so many people buying into this and and not thinking about how irrational it is? Well, there's two two elements to why it's working, one of which is that nobody, well, meaning people, which is the vast majority of America, they do not want to be called a racist. They don't want to be co- confronted with being called a bigot or having to explain why their views are not homophobic, um, bigoted in any kind of way. So there's a natural tendency for a lot of people, for most people, I would say, to just shy away from the fight. They don't like that fight. They don't like being called those names because they are the ugliest names in this country. Uh, but the other part of it is that, again, this is an ideology that has spread 
spread. It, it, it started with academia. It spread throughout college campuses. And, and this whole thing does rage on basically every university campus across this country. Um, it spreads and infects the children. It's, it's pushed out through the, um, through the, the professors and, and the administrators there. Um, and then Hollywood loves the dynamic of it. The, the, the dynamic is uh, the privileged versus the oppressed, the aggrieved, the victimized. That's the story they love telling. That's the message they love putting out over and over again, reinforcing that message. And it's the same same story that the national media love to tell. That's that's what happened with um, that's what happened with the Nick Sandman and the the Covington Catholic kids. They, yes. This image goes around that oh these are the white the white males and they're the privileged because it's a private school. Um, and then here's the, the the poor victimized and oppressed and aggrieved um, American Indian. That's that's what they see and that's what they set up in every single story that the national media love to tell. So, so again. And that's in the title of my book about the culture fascist. The culture fascist because they're reinforcing this message over and over and over again. Hollywood, the national media, academia, and then in politics now. One more example I'll give you is the, the, the squad, the so-called squad of the Democratic Party. AOC and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, the only reason that they're elevated at all is because they claim to have been, to be, to be victims and oppressed and aggrieved based on, in their case, it's, it's their gender and their, and their race. Right. Those are the two things that they claim as their forms of victimhood and having been oppressed. And again, that's a story that the that the media love to tell. That's why she's they're heralded on glossy magazines, glowing profiles on cable news just about every day. So again, this this whole thing has infected every part of our country, um, and that's that's why it has been so successful because they've seized the culture. Well, right. And in the case of Omar, the Islamic, you know, identity is also very key because she can get away with committing potential alleged immigration fraud by having married her brother. And the liberal media takes a, a complete blind eye. Oh, we don't want to talk about that. Why would we talk about that? Oh, sure, because that would be racist for us to criticize anyone. Uh, but and of, of course, she knows the game. She knows that if she is criticized, all she has to do is say, that's racist. That's yeah, racist. Right. You're coming after me because I'm a, I'm a threat to the privilege. Well, no, we're coming after you because you've done some weird things and you've said some <laughs> weird things, and we don't like that. Is it okay to criticize you? Well, again, a lot of people don't want to be called racist. So back to your other point, um, that's why it, this whole thing can be so successful. That, this is how they fight. They call you a racist, a bigot. Yeah. Uh, they say, I'm the one who's suffered at the hands of the privileged, um, and on and on it goes. Well, it does. And and this whole issue of my identity gives me a unique perspective on reality that you are forced not only to listen to, but to accept. Isn't this fundamentally a totally postmodern view of life? Oh, yeah, that's a, a big, big part of social justice. Social justice ideology is just an amalgam of every one of the left's worst ideas, um, including the postmodernism uh, view of the world. But it's Marxism, it's, uh, it's socialism, it's communism, it's feminism, it's queer theory, critical race theory. All of those things are in social justice. But, yes, that's a key feature of the way this operates is every, every person, depending on what level of grievance or victimization or oppression that they can claim based on their overlapping identities, uh, that's their truth. And you can't possibly understand it. So you need to check yourself. You need to check your privilege and listen to me. I'm the one who gets to speak now because I'm the victim. Yeah, it's kind of funny, though, because it breaks apart. For example, if you have all the feminists marching on Washington and screaming about Trump and you know screaming at the sky and all that, 
What it negates when they're talking about shouting their abortions, for example, are the millions of pro-life women in this country. So in other words, they assume these identities, but people who have similar identities who don't have the same ideology are just left out of the equation. And then they turn the race factor on those people. Well, you don't have as much of a say as a white pro-life woman because you have not been where I've been, perhaps as a minority woman who shouts her abortion. I mean, it's so insane. Who can keep track of all these identities? Well, that's the culture fascist element of this. Just like you said, they're left out. Yes, they're completely ignored. And again, the, the culture fascists in the news media and Hollywood, academia and the Democratic Party, certainly, they promote the, they promote the ones that they determine. The, these are the victims. No, these are the ones you have to listen to because, like you said, their identity is, is, is more important than yours. Why is it more important? Because we've deemed that they've suffered more than you. To, to have suffered, to have claimed to have been a victim, to, have been, to say that you've been oppressed, that is to be inherently good in social and, and, and the social justice sickness that's per, you know all around our country. Yeah. If I can claim those things, then then I am inherently good. I'm an, I'm innately superior to to anyone else deemed to have privilege by the culture fascists who run this country. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And going back to something that you said a moment ago, you hear lines like "my truth" all the time. I want to tell my truth. That's fundamentally postmodern as well because there is my side of the story or my opinion. But when you're using the phrase "my truth," that is over and against the idea that there is objective truth and objective reality that stands outside my experience, I could be dead and apples still fall from trees because of the law of gravity. Right, but it actually even goes a little bit further than this, and this is the worst part of it, I would say, in terms of this this particular um, feature of the social justice mob, um, the ideology, is not only do I get to tell you what my truth is, but if I can claim a higher form of grievance or victimhood on the what we call the intersectionality scale, yeah. I can tell you, no, what you, you may not think that what you said was racist. Let me tell you that it was racist <laughs> because I, it's my truth. It's my experience. I can tell you that. Um, and you don't get to have a say if you're, a, a, a worst of all, a straight white male in America. Um, but if I can look at you and say that, no, but you, you benefit from a different type of privilege. You may be a woman, but you're white. So therefore, me, as if I was a black woman, I, have, I happen to be a Latino, and yet I don't think I, I have never thought to myself to claim any of these types of yeah. oppression points and victimhood. So, yeah. you know, you, you're not going to see me hired by the Washington Post. Yeah, that's right. Eddie Scary, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford. 
Did you know that persecuted believers are praying to receive their own Bible? Nepo is a pastor in Africa attacked while preaching by extremists, and he's praying for Bibles for former Muslims who are now following Christ. Ada was forced into an arranged marriage to an abusive atheist in Europe, but her godly witness led him to Jesus. Emilio lost everything after his home was burned by witches in Latin America, and he's praying for a Bible to share Christ with them. Will you be the answer to these pleas for God's Word and see many others come to faith? $5 sends one Bible, $35 sends seven Bibles, and through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's Word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or by clicking the Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I guess I need to work on my identities so I can claim I've been oppressed by somebody. I guess I could just make something up and then I'd fit right in with the social justice warriors or as my guest Eddie Scary calls them culture fascists. His book is called Privileged Victims and we're talking about social justice and how it really is in the lead when it comes to the culture war right now. Eddie, we were talking about the whole issue of oppressed and oppressor. A lot of this though that is claimed is not necessarily factual. Would that be fair to say? That, that a lot of the claims that I've been oppressed and I have had this terrible grievance because such and such has been done to me, a lot of this isn't true. And you see this coming out, for example, with people like Jussie Smollett. I mean, you see these hate crime hoaxes all the time. And, and is that part and parcel of how they move the ball forward? Yes, and that's exactly true. Whether whether the claim to oppression or grievance or victimhood is true is always beside the point. Um, it doesn't really. It, it, it can come to light in like in, in cases like Jesse Smollett, where we we fortunately found out that it, it looks like he faked this. That's what Chicago police say. That's what two grand juries have determined. Um, but he knows that in this country, he he knew certainly, and, and mostly everyone else is catching on um, that if you want something, what did he? They said that he wanted he wanted more money from his Fox Empire show, um, and he wanted to get more famous. He certainly got more famous, became a celebrity, a, a much bigger celebrity overnight. Um, but again, his claim wasn't true, and that goes that's that's true for um, many, many, many other people. I think, it, in particular, you see it in Hollywood with the movies where the, the woman is uh, she's she's being held down by men, and but because she's you know she's got confidence that, <laughs> that that's yeah. supposed to be heralded, even if even if the movie isn't any good. Right. One example was the, the Ghostbusters movie. They tried to they tried to take out all the men and, and make it make them all women, all the cast of, of women. The movie bombed because it was bad. But the, the 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 message was more important than the quality. The message is first and foremost what what's in mind when they're trying to push this thing. Uh, the movie bombs. You have the the fran the people who run the franchise, the producers say, you know, what, we're just going to go back to the way it used to be, and we're going to cast we're going to cast males for the, the roles. One of the actresses, her name is Leslie, I forget her last name, but she she then throws a fit on Twitter, the one who had been in the all women cast, and says, well, this sends the message that boys are better than girls. So you see, all they're doing is pushing this. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's good. It doesn't matter if the, vic- the claim to victimhood or oppression is real. I'm sure she's doing just fine living out in Hollywood, making lots of money. But she claims it, and that's supposed to matter to somebody. Oh, good grief. So I have a moral responsibility to go see some bad remake of Ghostbusters with a bunch of women I have no interest in seeing. That's on me, then. It's not on their bad movie. Oh, yeah, sure. It's, it's, it's always... 
Um, I mean, you, you can see this again in every for the Democratic Party, for example, that it completely escaped them that the minority candidates that were actually running for president were having to drop out in large part because minority voters had sided with the white people. Yeah, <laughs> and yet right. the, the Democrats in, in, within that party who, who did support those candidates and, and liberals in the media kept saying, Oh, isn't this such a shame that all the minorities keep dropping out? This must be a racist country. Well, no, there's something wrong with your party or something going on there. Don't blame that on the country. Yeah, right. Well, this whole thing that we're a racist country, I know when we go back to the Obama years and all the stuff that went on, the balkanization, the intentional, I would say, balkanization of Americans into classes that, that really ramped up under Obama. I have never heard a leftist adequately respond to the question, how in the world can you claim that America is racist when Obama won two terms in office. If we were fundamental racists, how could he have won? Right. No, there's a lot of contradictions in this whole social justice ideology. Uh, things, things aren't necessarily supposed to make sense. There aren't really supposed to be arguments. In fact, the less argument is the better. You're just supposed to shut up and listen, depending on who, again, claims to have been victimized, oppressed, or, um, or aggrieved based on, based on their claim that, you know, it's because of my gender, it's because of my race that you did this to me, that I'm a victim because of my sexuality. Um, any number, those things are way more important than talking about arguments or facts or logic. Yeah, well, why, you know, why use facts and logic when you can just hurl an insult at somebody and get them to knuckle under? I mean, that's that's effectively what they've done. These identity politics purveyors are, are very good at that. I, I've got a question about border security because one of the things you address in the book is social justice and what's been going on regarding the fight over, you know, the border walls and all the rest. I mean, what are your thoughts on how the Democrats have kind of morphed over the years from backing protected borders to screaming about kids in cages that, factually speaking, started under Obama anyway. What, what is going on here, do you think, in the broader question of social justice and its effect on politics? Right. Well, this is the spread of social justice. You've, this is that's a perfect example. And there's an entire chapter in my book about immigration, an entire chapter chapter on privileged victims about just this thing, where. Even if Democrats did support it at one time, they've not, they've not, this is the effect of social justice making its way through the party. They now say, oh, wait, no, that, that's a racist thing because, and again, even if you can make the case that's no, obviously it's not racist. We can, we can be not racist um, and just hope that we know who's coming to the country. We want a policy that says not everyone just gets to dump themselves in here. And, and we hope that you're, you're going to contribute. We should be able to evaluate who comes in. But no, they, this is, again, how you get power, because that's what this whole thing is about, is achieving power, achieving your your advancing your own special interests, and for, that's why it's a political debate within the Democratic Party, and that's why they've taken the position that they do, as nonsensical and illogical as it is, they know that to say, oh, well, this is racist, I'm calling you a racist, you have to stop talking now, you have to accept, you have to accept our policy, and that you have to elect us now, because we're not the racist. Um, the Republicans are the racist, President Trump is the racist, normal Americans who believe that there should be some orderly process to entering the country rather than just stepping across the river, um, those people are all racist. So again, it's about power. This is how they do it. And this is this is social justice in action. Right. And this is why they don't put, for example, Latinos on TV who will say, hey, I came here legally. I'm all for what Trump is doing. Those people don't get a say. They don't get interviewed. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> we saw it 
multiple times when Trump would have a press conference and he'd bring up um, Border Patrol agents, the overwhelming number of which are Latino. And I've been to the border twice. I've talked with them. They will all say, we'd like a border wall. We can't, we can't manage this obscene number of people while the asylum law is, is, is the way it is, which is basically just a big gap in our immigration system that says anyone's welcome here so long as they can set foot in the country and claim, claim asylum. Um, all of them are Latinos, but Trump would try to put them on TV at the White House. House, no, le- no less, at the White House in a press conference, and then the MSNBC and CNN would, CNN would instantly cut away from it. No, they don't want to hear from that because it totally disrupts their, their whole narrative about who's the privileged and who's the victim, yeah. just like they push in the social justice ideology. Yeah, it's Pravda all over again. And I'm curious, when you talk about these cultural fascists elevating the worst people, who would you classify as some of these people, these worst people who are being featured and elevated by social justice warriors? Uh, well, in the Democratic Party, I would say it, it is the squad because their whole, they, they, to uh, my knowledge, they've, they've accomplished nothing. There's nothing on their record, and yet they're lauded by the news media, put on the put on glossy, glossy covers of magazines, and no, no no journalist in the national news, news media has a bad thing to say about any of them. No criticism at all. Yeah. Um, in Hollywood, you would see someone like Amy Schumer who gets famous, someone who uh, does nothing but say the most vulgar things. Right. <laughs> she gets she gets then put on, and her movies are awful. They're absolutely terrible. And I say that as a matter of fact, not a matter of opinion. Um, and yet the New York Times, the next thing you know, will run um, run an entire profile where she's photographed um, wearing a sexy top. And <laughs> this, these are the people that, that benefit the most. And I, I, a perfect example, like you said earlier, was Jesse Smollett. What do you want? He wanted money. He wanted to get more famous. Out, he claims that he was attacked for being black and gay by two white Trump supporters instantly. All the outpouring of support from celebrities much bigger than him. We all know his name now. Even people in the Democratic Party were coming to his defense. People in the news media were coming to his defense. Despite, you know, we didn't know anything about him. We didn't know if he was a good actor. We didn't know if he was a good singer. But, no, he claims victimhood. Go ahead and elevate him. These are the things I'm talking about. Yeah, except for all of us who are from Chicago who heard the story that there were guys in MAGA hats walking down the streets <laughs> of Chicago. We went, sure, Jesse. Sure, there were tons of MAGA hat wearers in Chicago. Yeah, all right, sure. I mean, he, he at least could have picked a big red state city, and maybe he would have been a little bit more believed. But, again, that's back to the whole thing that they're up to, which is to control the way people think. Where do you see this headed, though, Eddie, when you're looking at the effects of social justice and this kind of groupthink that they're putting on Americans? How, you know, is there any chance that people can really fight back against this and and squash it? Because it definitely needs to be squashed. But is there any hope for that? Well, we have seen signs that people are willing to fight back against this stuff. I think a big part of Donald Trump's election in the in the 2016 um, campaign was a cultural answer. It was it was saying, you know what, we're tired of being told we can't say what we want. We're tired of being told if we think this way, we're racist, even though we're not racist. I think that was a big appeal that he had. He said, you know what, I don't care if the national media says this. I'm going to say it because I think it's the truth. Yeah. Um, I think the the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh was another uh, another sign because. What, what was the criticism of him? Uh, it was that, well, that you accuse him of rape, but why can't he properly or, or 
legitimately defend himself? Well, because he's a white male. He's a straight white male, and everyone on the Republican Judiciary Committee defending him is a straight white male. So why, we should, why should we listen to them? Yeah. Uh, well, he got confirmed. He sits on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump may win election again, but people do have to be willing to fight. They have to be willing to say, you know what, you can call me racist, you can call me, but I'm not going away and I'm not shutting up. Well, and what about calling out the hypocrisy? I know an awful lot of white people, I would put myself in the same category, who are sick and tired of being called white supremacists and white privilege and white. There are plenty of white people who grew up with absolutely nothing and worked their way and studied their way into achieving the American dream. And that's the dream that's available to anybody who will work hard. I mean, that's a narrative that I think needs to be put out there that you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Northam, Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, can have a blackface scandal and nothing happens to him. That never would have happened had he been a Republican. Oh, right. This stuff does need to be called out. You do have to show, again, some fight. I think, uh, and the big reason why I wrote this book is because I felt exactly like what you're describing, you, how you said there are plenty of white people that came from nothing. Well, I'm a Latino man. I grew up in the working class South. My mother was an immigrant. My dad was a Marine. I wasn't given anything, really. I, I, I had a really nice family, but that's about it. Now, now I write on politics in Washington. I'm an author. <laughs> I'm not rich by any means, but I also don't run around claiming to have been victimized and oppressed, so right. maybe that's what's holding me back. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is, but I think that you've got some great, great points and great stuff in this book. It's called Privileged Victims. Eddie Scary with us, and it was so good to have you here, Eddie. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you so much. All right, God bless, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. I'm going to go out on a limb here and go a little bit beyond what I've said in the past about Dr. Russell Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I have been very critical of him for six years now, five years, I don't know, long time, a very long time, too long of a time, but he's just given me so much material. What am I supposed to do when you say that all of Christian radio makes people hate Christianity and that's your opening salvo and then you just go downhill from there? What am I supposed to do? (laughs) Really, as a conservative Christian, you can't just sit there and let this stuff go. At any rate, I am to the point now where I will come right out and say, I can't think of a worse person to represent the Southern Baptists on the issue of religious liberty than Russell Moore. And I think he's finally reached the zenith of... Well, I would say, well, the zenith would be high. I guess he's reached the low point at this point on on this issue. Here's why I say this. He wrote a, a column on April 11th. This was over this past weekend on Saturday. Churches and governments are cooperating. Let's keep it that way. And I won't read it to you, but the, the, the basic gist of it was that most churches are cooperating with their local governments and their, their governors, and they are complying with the requests to shut down their churches and do online services. And the only people who are really violating that are a couple of outliers, and most of them are prosperity gospel nuts. That's the essence of the article. Now, what he doesn't say in this article 
is anything about these legitimate violations of the Constitution that are occurring. Like it or not, and I've been very clear about this from day one, like it or not, if you have a church that is treated the way some of these churches have been treated over the weekend and in recent days, you can't deny that there have been overreaches and there has been a little bit of totalitarianism going on. But what's happened is that, in my view, Dr. Moore is more concerned with propping up, see, most Christians are doing the right thing. And I agree with him on that. I do agree with him on that. I think there are some people in some of these churches, and I'm not going to name names, but I think some of them are doing it a little bit for the publicity or a little bit for the defiant thing or a little bit because they see an opportunity to get attention. There are a few probably who are like that, but I think there are others who are genuinely trying to do what they really believe is right, and they're trying to comply. How in the world can you defend the government coming down on people who are having a drive-in service? How are you supposed to spread COVID-19 to a guy in the next car? See, that's where somebody like Russell Moore might come in handy, where he could come down and say, listen, I do think that most churches should comply with these wise and prudent requests on the part of government to not spread the coronavirus. And like I said, I agree with him on that. I completely agree with him on that. But when you see totalitarian moves taking place, isn't it really important for somebody who has religious liberty in his title and represents the largest Protestant denomination in the United States to maybe say something about it? Because thus far, he hasn't said much of anything except in this particular article. He says here, times of crisis sometimes lead to fraying nerves, severed relationships, into paranoia and mistrust. Oh, paranoia. The real story so far in our country is how little of this has happened between the church and the state. All right. We should work to keep it this way for the sake of everyone. And he talks again about in the few cases where there have been problems, such these groups have been extreme outliers, extreme outliers, usually associated with the various prosperity gospel movements. I assume there he's referring to Rodney Howard Brown and Rodney Howard Brown is a prosperity gospel guy. He is the Holy Ghost bartender. I'm no fan of his. I think he was a little bit in people's faces about it, as was Tony Spell in Louisiana. I have no problem, but it's gone beyond that, Russell. It's not just the prosperity gospel people who are doing this. In fact, I was looking at all the lawsuits that have come about. There's three churches now in California who are suing Governor Newsom over physical distancing orders. This is from ABC7. Three Southern California churches that want to stay open during the COVID-19 pandemic are suing Governor Newsom over these orders, which they say violate the First Amendment right to freedom of religion and assembly. Here's another one. An Albuquerque megachurch is now suing the state, claiming the governor violated the First Amendment that protects the freedom of religion. Specifically, it is focused on the church's Easter Sunday service and the number of people it takes to live stream to its congregation. This particular pastor says this legacy church filed suit requires requesting a temporary restraining order, but also a permanent injunction affording them the same restrictions as local essential retailers, limiting capacity to 20%. This pastor, Steve Smotherman, says to hold Sunday service, they would have a worship team, a band, the pastor and technical staff, which is about 30 people. And so conducting the live stream services would immediately violate the governor's order to limit gatherings to no more than five people. 
That's another one. ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, our friends over there have now gotten involved in some lawsuits as well. They talk about Temple Baptist Church in Greenville, Mississippi. That's not a prosperity gospel church. They found one creative way to deal with this. This is the drive-in church service for the attendees, but then the police officers busted up a midweek service, find those in attendance, and now they say ADF has filed suit in federal district court just a day after learning about the Big Brother treatment of this church. Might this be a good time for the head of the ERLC to speak up? Even though he wants everybody, you know, all his liberal friends to go, oh, most churches are abiding. Yeah, they are, but where they're not abiding, could you not say something? Can't it, can it be a both and? Yes, we should work with the government. See, because I would argue that, in fact, what has been lacking, and I don't think there were any nefarious intentions here, but I think what has been lacking in some cases has been the fact that you had government officials enacting certain restrictions, not realizing how churches might react to it. And it might have been better in some cases to interact with pastors or to interact with other religious leaders. Hey, listen, this is what we're going to do, and we're not trying to violate your religious liberty. Have a discussion before you come down with these draconian restrictions in some cases, Uh, you know, and it didn't happen. So, you know, mistakes can be made on both sides, but all of these lawsuits being filed pertaining to genuine constitutional concerns regarding these churches and some of the, as I say, over the top restrictions and unconstitutional behavior of some of these governments. So this brings me to why I say I, I think he's like the worst religious liberty representative that the Southern Baptist could find because now comes this story in the Washington Post. Nine leaders at evangelical Christian organizations are urging the Trump administration to release people from immigration detention facilities who do not pose a threat to public safety during the coronavirus pandemic, particularly those who are elderly or otherwise at higher risk for contracting COVID-19. In a letter sent Monday to Chad Wolf, acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, the evangelicals called for alliances with religious and other local groups to help find released detainees safe accommodations in which to shelter in place for as long as such practices are advised. Such actions to aid social distancing and detention, the faith leaders wrote, would help staff as well as detained migrants. The prominent evangelicals wrote, Our concern is rooted in our Christian belief that each human life is made in the image of God. It's his line. Every single time when he does something liberal, these people are made in the image of God. Yeah, we know. And thus precious. And like you, we want to do everything possible to minimize the loss of life as a result of this pandemic. Oh, let's see. The letter was signed by Russell Moore, Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and Samuel Rodriguez, president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Council, among others. The signatories are senior members of the Evangelical Immigration Table, a group of Christian leaders who support comprehensive immigration reform. So this is what your ethics and religious liberty chief is fighting for, Southern Baptist. He's fighting for illegal aliens to be released from detention facilities at a time when Christians across this country are filing lawsuits because of draconian action that's been leveled against them by in many cases, liberal politicians. This is what the guy is focused on. More of this open borders garbage. More of this Soros-funded evangelical immigration table nonsense. It's the political stuff that he wants done. He wants this issue on the front burner at all times. You know, and how 
is this serving the interests of Southern Baptists? I don't want anybody in a detention facility to die of COVID-19. That's not it. I don't deny that anybody who's here illegally is is created in the image of God. Of course they are. But I also believe in the rule of law. We've been over this umpteen times. But more importantly and more to the point, why is it that this is the front burner issue for Russell Moore right now while he poo-poos the idea that any church that's involved in any kind of dispute over social distancing or church services, they're all a bunch of kooks. I think that's disgraceful. I really, really do. I don't mind saying it. We're going to come back on Janet Mefford today after this. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is creating funding difficulties for many of Preborn's clinics with canceled events which help fund the clinic operations. All the while this is happening, our clinics are seeing more and more women in unplanned pregnancies call us as sheltering-in orders have generated more unplanned pregnancies. Our call center is flooded with girls calling. Can you help us in this time of increased need? Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To help a mom in need choose life, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call now. 855-402-BABY. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. From now through April, Janet Mefford today is partnering with Bible League to send Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Thank you so much for being with us. This is a very sad story I saw on CBS. The coronavirus outbreak has fueled attempts to ban abortions in some states, but providers where the procedure remains available report increased demand, often from women distraught over economic stress and health concerns linked to the pandemic. They quote Julie Burkhart, who manages abortion clinics in Wichita and Oklahoma City, saying the calls we've been getting are frantic. We've seen more women coming sooner than they would have because they're scared they won't be able to access the services later. Can you imagine? Can you imagine looking at abortion as being something that's a health crisis? First of all, a normal pregnancy is not a health crisis. It's, It's a blessing. And you should go ahead and have your baby. 
Your choice was when you got pregnant, in most cases willingly, uh, you got there willingly, have your baby. What's the issue? Have your baby. And these people are acting like, oh, no, if they don't get their pregnancies terminated, if they don't kill their children, horrors will ensue. Well, you know, the old line about beware of taking advice from somebody who has a vested financial interest in you taking the advice still applies here because most times when you see stories of this nature, they run right to Planned Parenthood. And that's exactly what CBS News did. I want you to listen a little bit to this report that came out in which the reporter introduces a young woman named Brittany who found out her abortion in Texas had been canceled. This is cut one. I just felt so lost. Like I just crying and crying and crying. I called my mom, just like, I know, honey, I'm so sorry. Brittany is one of hundreds of patients caught in the middle of what some say is a public health crisis within a public health crisis. We're trying to save lives. Two weeks ago, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton issued a near total ban on abortion amid the coronavirus outbreak, calling the procedure non-essential. For the first time since Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that legalized the procedure in 1973, the vast majority of abortion services have been unavailable in the state. It's not an easy decision. It affects a lot of people's lives in a negative way. And and I'm sad that that happens to these women. making these decisions without fully understanding the impact. Dr. Amna Dermish provides abortion services at a Planned Parenthood affiliate in Austin. The attorney general's office says in court that to suspend abortions temporarily is a fair trade-off given the public health crisis. It is not because that assumes that abortion is not a time-sensitive procedure and it is a very much a time-sensitive procedure. <sighs> it's murder. It's murder time sensitive in the fact that it's easier to do an abortion when the baby is really small as opposed to when the baby gets bigger. It's easier to do an abortion when a baby is five weeks along than five months along. But these people want their blood money. That's all it is. They don't care about these girls. They don't care about these women's lives. They don't care about the toll it takes on these girls after they choose to abort their own children. They don't care about the toll it will take long term. They don't care what will happen if these girls in old age are reflecting back on the baby they never had, the baby that they sought to abort because they got scared and nobody came along and said to them, listen, a baby is a blessing. Don't throw away your daughter. Don't throw away your son. You will regret it for the rest of your life. You are denying yourself one of the most incredible joys of all of human existence, and that's to be a mom. Who in Planned Parenthood would ever give that spiel to any girl who comes looking to abort her child? All they want is the cash. That's all it is to them, the cash. It is beyond evil. I don't have a word for it, except perhaps demonic. But I want to play more of this report from CBS News. Listen to cut two. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology agrees with Dr. Dermish. In a statement, the organization called abortion an essential component of comprehensive health care. I saw a patient just just this week who um, was diagnosed with a, with a fetal anomaly, um, and she can't have an abortion. Five states, including Texas, have instituted temporary abortion bans, citing the need to conserve medical resources all face legal challenges. Why is a temporary ban on abortion not considered unconstitutional? Well, the governor's executive order deals with all elective procedures, so it's not like he was singling out uh, abortion services. The battle could make it all the way to the Supreme Court. Brittany says she does not plan to wait. I have a choice 
whenever I want to become a mother, I can. And this is not the time. She told us she plans to drive to New Mexico to terminate her pregnancy, defying the state's stay-at-home order. All right. Well, so she's willing to break the law in order to kill her child. I mean, pray for this young woman. She's completely deceived. She's completely deceived. And and think about this. When the example was given of the woman who can't have an abortion because she has a fetal anomaly, and this is just horrible because she can't get the baby killed, uh, and it, it's worse because there's an anomaly. Well, what anomaly? What anomaly? It, I mean, what, what anomaly would the fetus have, the baby have, that would require an immediate abortion? They don't really say. You're just supposed to go, oh, no, it's a fetal anomaly. Rush her over to Planned Parenthood. It's insane. Keep your baby. And, and might I also say this, having been through four pregnancies, doctors aren't always right. And I've, I have talked to so many moms who have found this to be the case. Most doctors are really good and great and everything. And we all have our favorite doctors. I'm not knocking the medical profession, but they're not God. And sometimes doctors have been wrong. And sometimes when you have tests, they turn out not to be right. I, you know, everything from misdiagnosing placenta previa in a pregnant woman to saying this baby's going to have this abnormality. And then they go back and check the next month and say, no, in fact, the baby doesn't have that. We were mistaken. It looked like it at first, but now it's not. They make mistakes. And these young girls, what are they believing when they go in there and they're trusting that these doctors, quote unquote, are going to give them the straight scoop? What What is the issue there? The, the issue is that we have fundamentally lost any sort of reverence for human life, not reverence in the sense that we give to the Lord, but almost because we're created in his image and we're created in his likeness. And he said, thou shalt not murder. And it isn't any more complicated than that. It isn't more complicated than that. It's not. And might I also say, if you're trying to make a case for abortion demand rising amid the pandemic because women are scared, I would say people are scared of a lot of things. A lot of things. There are millions of Americans who have lost their jobs. There are millions of Americans who have lost their businesses. There are many things that are giving people stress at this moment. And you don't rectify it by doing something insane. That's all I'm saying. And I listen, I just say this because as we've been bringing to you the information about preborn, this is just more proof that crisis pregnancy centers are more valuable than ever before. And they really are struggling. Dan Steiner from Preborn and I discussed this recently on the broadcast that they're having trouble too because they're having difficulty. A lot of older people, for example, will volunteer at these crisis pregnancy centers. They're feeling more inclined to stay home because of the increased likelihood that if you're elderly and you contract COVID-19, you could have a really bad time of it and you could even die. It's much more risky for you if you're elderly to catch the coronavirus than it is if you're under the age of 65. So they're dealing with lower staff. But here's the bottom line. It doesn't change the fact that when abortion an abortion-minded woman goes into a crisis pregnancy center and she is offered the opportunity to have a free ultrasound, She wants to abort her baby. She's there because she's pretty much made up her mind that she wants to terminate her pregnancy. And the crisis pregnancy center workers say to her, would you like to have a free ultrasound? It's not going to cost you anything just to see your baby. And for those women who say yes, eight out of 10 of them will choose life after they see that child. There is something about seeing your own child in front of your eyes in the womb that just cuts through Every pro-choice lie those girls have ever heard. 
And that's why we really love what Preborn is doing. And we love what Preborn is doing because Preborn is also getting the gospel to these women and getting the gospel to these subsequent families. I mean, think about the long lasting impact of all of that. If you save a human life, that's just unbelievable. But if you can also get the message of eternal life to these girls, you will change their lives and you will change the lives of those babies. If you have a Christian mom, boy, you know how powerful a Christian mom is or a Christian dad. You know what a difference that makes. If you were fortunate enough and blessed enough to grow up in a Christian home, you know how important it is to have a mom or a dad or maybe a grandpa or grandma praying for you, loving you, treating you in a, in a way consistent with a Christian believer and, and showing you the importance of scripture and the importance of going to church, that makes a huge difference in somebody's life. And there's so many kids today who are growing up in homes that never even go to church. So this is what Preborn is all about. So I just want to remind you, if you'd like to support them during this time, they would really appreciate it. One ultrasound costs just $28. And for a gift of $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds. So the number to call is 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. 855-402-BABY. Or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. And we'll see you next time.